Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 248. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we're delighted to be brought to this place right now where we can stop, slow down, and take our time to study your word so that we can be equipped for doing your service, so that we can be ambassadors for your great name, so that we can be witnesses of your coming kingdom, so that we can let others know that there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that name is Yeshua. That name is Jesus. Thank you for this um, distinct opportunity and challenge that is presented whenever we um, go through the pages of God's Word for any particular topic. But tonight we're going to be studying the same two topics that we have been studying for the past few months, which are the first segment, which is an eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events, a study about end-time details with a view towards the book of Revelation ultimately. And then the second topic for the study is the Trinitarian type topic of a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Really, it's a kind of an apologetic course. But thank you, Lord, for both of these topics and the fact that you've kind of laid them on my heart and are uh, allowing me to share my thoughts with each and every student that joins each week. So be with us tonight. Bless us. Um, Allow the uh, words to take root. uh, Allow your truths to be relevant and uh, cause us to walk them out and not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers, uh, not to be hearers only, but to be to- doers, doers of the word, not hearers only, and um, give us holy boldness as we continue to look for opportunities to witness to others about the um, great good news of Yeshua's salvation. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of shame, Yeshua. Amen. My name is Arlo bin Lyman Hanavi, and this is the first segment in an hour and a half a long study. Sometimes it even goes out to almost two hours. I was looking at the times lately, but it really is supposed to be an hour and a half. Segment one is eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. And looking at the screen right now, this is the uh, topical schedule that I've been using. Topics 1 through 18 were kind of right in the middle with topic nine, the yellow highlighted part there, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse part two. And we've basically covered almost all of the chapter that I was anticipating covering. Go back and read Matthew chapter 24 on your own. Really, to you know, to give it the full weight of the topic, if I wanted to continue going, I would suggest that you read Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 when you're reading the uh, listing in Matthew. Remember, however, that the Olivet Discourse sermon that Yeshua gave to his disciples that day um, has been recorded for us in Mark 13, Luke 17, and in Luke 21. So, really to get the the biggest picture so that you're capturing all of the details that the Bible has left for us, you want to read all three synoptic versions of the Olivet Discourse. But for this study, we only focused on Matthew. We also found that... As we got near the end of the Matthew reading, that there were particular details that caught our attention for this particular segment as we're going to begin turning into rapture views in topic 10 and 11 and 12, a topic that is sure to be a hot potato for sure, right? But the details that that I find a lot of Christians and Bible readers seem to focus on, besides the big kind of elephant in the room question about when is the rapture 
Uh, is there even a rapture? But if there is, when is it, right? You know, there's kind of four main Christian views that we'll talk about when we get to those next three topics. But what I found as we get down into Matthew's reading is that the issue surrounding the timing of the rapture creates the interpretation as to whether or not when we're talking about people who are um, taken and left behind, like we read about you know, way down in near the end of the chapter, who is it that's taken and who is it that's left behind? And for this study, just as a review or reminder, I don't really want to go through the review again, but reminder is that uh, after reading Tim Haig's notes, I'll just bring them up from the, on the screen for you, I highlighted kind of the... Or the, the perspective that he takes, which is similar to the perspective I take, that the if you look at the, the, the weight of the context, those who are taken, when Yeshua says two, two will be in one place, two will be in another place, and one will be taken and one will be left when the time comes for the Son of Man to return, right? When Yeshua returns to planet Earth. Well, um, according to what Tim sees and what I see, the context demands that those who are taken are the ones who are rescued, i.e. raptured, and those who are left to face the wrath of God, those who are left are those who face the wrath of God. So the taken and the left are designated as those who are raptured and those who are judged, um, the righteous and the wicked, respectively. Well, this is the way that the popular you know, Left Behind books, Tim LaHaye and, and the, the Jenkins uh, in, uh, gentleman, I can't remember his name, um, how they both got it uh, how they both portrayed it in the Taken and the Left Behind. The Taken were the, the Christians, and then the book series follows what happens to everyone who's left behind to face the you know the the Antichrist and the, the tribulation, the seven year tribulation, according to their perspective, etc. Well, what we're finding again, and, and uh, we'll study this a little bit more as, as far as the timing, but we're finding that depending on how you um, interpret Matthew 24 verses, let me bring it up here for you. Um, oops, not there. Uh, Matthew 24 verses, uh, basically 30, if I were to back up to um, verse, uh, you can see on your screen, verse 29, and where it talks about the, 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 the cosmic signs and then the coming of the Son of Man. Because the verse opens up with immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the tribulation of those days, Yeshua says, well, then for the pre-tribbers who believe that they're not going to go through any tribulation, this part of Matthew must be a reference to not the rapture, but to the second coming. I'll show you to chart in a moment what I mean by those two sections. So based on that, what, we, what we've what we been kind of entertaining with the idea is that if you don't interpret this slice of Yeshua's uh, discourse uh, as the second coming, but instead locate these verses within the rapture and parallel them to the Thessalonian passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, around starting at verse 51, things like that, uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6. If you instead parallel what Yeshua said here with what Paul said and then match it up with the chronology of the uh, revelation that John was given in the very last book of the Bible, then you're going to believe you're going to follow a, a view that this is rapture and not second coming and with that when you talk about um the day that no one the, the day and the hour that no one knows and um the uh similarities between the days of noah and the fact that the flood came and took them all away and then it's that that two will be here and there and everywhere and one will be taken one will be left 
because you're talking about rapture, then you can agree with what Tim said and what I am teaching that. And I'll show you this last slide to kind of settle the uh, or to make it a little more easy for you to follow the theology I'm talking about. In rapture, Christians are taken and the wicked are left. And in the second coming, the opposite happens. The wicked are taken and the Christians are left. Of course, when I say opposite, in the rapture, the Christians are taken to heaven, taken to be with the Lord and meet him in the air, as well as the resurrected saints, etc., etc. But in the second coming, the wicked aren't taken into the air to be with Christ or any such place. Rather, instead, they're dragged off into judgment, uh, those who are uh, alive after the end of the 70th week has run its course. So, with that in mind, when we go back to Matthew's rendering and we look now at where Yeshua says, but of that day and hour no one knows, what I mentioned in previous teachings is that this really stretches our understanding of which time period we're talking about because in this classic um, pre-wrath uh, view that you're seeing on your screen right now, which is a picture of the seven, 70th week of Daniel, also known as the seven-year tribulation, even though I don't like that term, seven-year tribulation, but the seven, the last seven years of humanity's history here on earth, just before Yeshua comes to establish his kingdom, if you're taking the pre-millennial perspective that I do. So, I'm a pre-wrath, pre-millennial, but from this perspective, at the far left of the screen would be um, the beginning of the 70th week, but not the rapture of the church. Instead, the rapture takes place on this chart somewhere after the midpoint, probably about three quarters of the way into the 70th week or the seven years, and then contrast that with the return of Christ at the far right of the screen in which Jesus returns to establish his thousand-year uh, millennial kingdom here on planet Earth. Well, when we look at this chart, if we say that no one knows the day or the hour, we can only apply that saying to the rapture, because it is the rapture in which Yeshua rescues the righteous, in which he comes to rescue his bride, the church, and it is the rapture that cuts short the great tribulation that was um begun by antichrist and by the wrath of satan so we don't know when that rapture is going to take place we just know that it will it will simultaneously rescue the righteous and at the same time initiate what we call the day of the lord wrath the day of the lord judgment which include the seven seals and the um or the i'm sorry the seventh seal all seven trumpets and all seven bowls like you can see on the yellow arrow on your screen and then moving towards the right side of the screen according to daniel which we've seen on charts like this according to daniel the exact timing beginning from the midpoint of the week when antichrist breaks his covenant with israel his seven-year covenant he breaks it by setting up the abomination which causes desolation, maybe some sort of statue or image in the temple, um, defiling the temple, etc., etc. From that midpoint, which is three and a half years into the seven years, at that point, Daniel has been given exact days counting down the rule of the prince, which is the Antichrist, and he numbers them as 1260 days. So go back and read Daniel starting in about chapter. I want to say start in chapter 7 to get the context and work your way all the way through to the end of the book, which is, you know, chapter 12. But pay attention when you start getting to chapter um, 9 and uh, uh, nine and um, 12. I believe those two start to be used, start to use this language of time times, half a time, uh, 1260 days, things like that, the rule of the prince. Look for that language to show up in Daniel. 
And this tells us that from the midpoint to the end of the 70th week, we can count down the, 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 the we, how do we say in modern terminology, we say that Antichrist's days are numbered. He is given this 42-month period to, um, to have his reign on earth, right, Satan incarnate, you know, the perverse version of the incarnation. Well, He's given this time period by God to reign, but it doesn't mean that God's going to allow him all 42 months to persecute the saints and to kill whomever he wishes. Rather, he's given these 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, and yet the tribulation will be cut short by the rapture and the initiation of the day of the Lord. Yeshua said it. Using language like, unless those days had been cut short, no flesh would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, I'm going to cut those days short. Meaning, I believe he's talking about cutting short the tribulation, but not cutting short the rule of the prince. Daniel says that the rule of the prince is 1260 days. Well, Daniel also was told by the angel that until the destruction of the prince, right, the destruction of the Antichrist, it would be an extra 30 days. Of course, we, we're going to get details about those extra 30 days from the book of Revelation, so we're not going to look at them right now. But Daniel's just told there's 1,290 days. And then the, the uh, angel continues with his these details, and I believe these ones that I'm talking about now with the, name, with the numbers, 1260, 1290, 1335, those actually show up primarily right near the very end of Daniel. Look at chapter read the last half of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12 i believe is where you're going to find these this terminology but daniel's told that there are 1335 days from the midpoint to the not just the end of the seventh week and not just the end of the 30 day um what we call a reclamation period but the end of the 45 days which is the restoration period i'm going to call it that 30 days which really um kind of covers the the, the bold judgments outlined in the book of revelation and then 45 days to allow for the restoration of uh, mount zion which was in, which is in shambles um and and uh, the the Jewish people who've been hiding out in the desert for 260 days, according to Revelation chapter 12, hiding from uh, Antichrist and things like that. Well, the kingdom eventually gets brought in at the end of not just the 70th week, but at the end of the 30 days and at the end of the 45 days, which add up to 75 days. So we're going to talk about this time period uh, here clustered at the end of 35 and the 45 days for a few reasons. Number one, if Daniel was given the exact days from the midpoint to the end of the seventh week, to the end of the uh, destruction of the prince, to the rule of Christ, well, then when Yeshua says no man knows the day or the hour, he cannot be talking about the rat. Uh, I'm sorry, he cannot be talking about the ushering in of the kingdom and what we would call the return of Christ unless Yeshua was really stretching Daniel's language and almost to the point of disagreeing with Daniel by saying no one knows the day, right? Because clearly the angel knew the day, he told it to Daniel. He didn't say anything about the hour, but he clearly gave Daniel the days right up until three primary and very important events take place, the rule of the prince, the destruction of the prince, and the rule of Christ. So Daniel was given the days. So how can Yeshua say that no one knows the day? Well, it makes perfect sense if we take those words that Yeshua gave us in Matthew and push them back into the time of the rapture, and instead of pushing them away into the time of his second coming. So when we say rapture and second coming, we looked at this chart uh weeks ago as well, or we've been referencing it recently, that the coming of Christ, the parousia of Christ, 
is best understood as including two primary aspects, events, bookends, but not two comings. So we can have one coming spoken of in Scripture and affirmed by the Tanakh, the Old Testament itself. There's one coming, one second coming, not a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth, etc., etc., innumerable. Rather, there's one coming, one parousia, or parousia is how I say it, and yet that event of the coming of Christ, which really is synonymous with the day of the Lord. Also, the language is mirrored. The the events are are um are the same event really. The coming of Christ is the day of the Lord. Is the day of Christ. Is the day of God, etc. It's, it's it's the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on on wicked humanity. Well, it's broken up into chronologically first the rapture, which happens. I don't believe at the beginning of the seven years, but somewhere past the midpoint. And then it's separated by the events of the wrath of God that are poured out that we read about in the trumpet judgments of Revelation, the seven of them, as well as the seven bold judgments. And then after the end of all that, at the, the end of the after the day of the Lord has run its course, then we have the second coming at the far end of the seventh week, after the thirty days, after the forty-five days, after the thirty days and the additional forty-five days. So that's why, as you know, looking here's another chart that does the same thing. That's why we can circle back around and say that rapture is for Christians uh, to take them out of the world before the day of the Lord is poured out. And we don't know the day or the hour when that's going to happen, yet it is our blessed hope because it is the resurrection, not just of the believers who have gone on to be with the Lord at this time, but it's also the transformation of the living believers who will be alive to meet the Lord when he returns that day and his feet don't even touch down. And this is the blessed hope that Paul gives us in the resurrection, but it is also the mystery that was hidden from the Tanakh uh, readers, from the Old Testament saints, the mystery of God catching away his faithful bride to meet his faith, their faithful husband in the air to be reunited together as one big family with the dead in Christ who have risen and gotten resurrected bodies and the transformation of our bodies as living believers. That's a mystery, not the resurrection itself, right? That was foretold in the Old Testament over and over. That's why the Pharisees believed it, right? That's why Yeshua taught it. It wasn't the mystery to them. It wasn't a mystery to Paul. But when he started talking about how that um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, um, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of eye, in a moment of twinkling of eye, um, then you know we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I'm transitioning into the into the Thessalonian language now. But we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'll finish out with the with the Thessalonian, transitioning seamlessly from the Corinthian fifteen fifty one into the First Thessalonians chapter four. So that's what we're looking at right now is this time period, and we'll deal more with rapture timing in the when we get to the topics nine, uh, ten, eleven, and twelve. But for now, let's conclude this part of. Of my study again by um, reminding us that wow where am I uh, sorry my bookmark wasn't where it needs to be there we go by reminding us that we've talked about this idea of understanding a bit better about the timing of the rapture or the timing of Yeshua's statement where he says no man knows the day or the hour is it truly that we're completely in the dark or if can we really build a case that 
it's possible that what Yeshua is trying to tell us is that even though you don't know exactly the day or the hour, you should know the season. You should know the approximation of when I'm going to return. And then he gives us all these signs that point up to his return. He gives us signs and clues and hints that what planet Earth will be like in that day, you know, as it was in the days of Noah. And uh, he tells us about, um, you know, if the, it gives us parables, parables of the fig tree and um Things that inform us of not maybe the exact day and the hour, but do inform us of an approximation of when we could probably expect this. And just before I jump into this particular blog um, article here that you're seeing in front of your, uh, seeing on the screen now, the Feast of Trumpets and its Christian significance, I just want to remind you that this idea of taking Yeshua's words that no one knows that they are the hour and possibly seeing them as and seeing them as a possible kint of perhaps a return, a rapture that takes place in the fall of the year that is uh, paralleled by the themes of the fall feasts. We looked at this way back you know, four months ago on my own, uh, in my own YouTube studies, it was a kind of a special fall feast eschatology show. You can see on the screen, I've got up, I've got my own, um, YouTube channel pulled up youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate say Torah ministries, all one word written out. Uh, and you can go from my YouTube channel to the playlist known as eschatology biblical study of end time events and from there scroll down past uh some of the thumbnails that look like the standard ones which are kind of the orangish colored and look for the thumbnails that are suddenly blue right they're just kind of out of the out of the blue as i'm kind of scrolling to show you uh, pun intended out of the blue as you're scrolling down from the first ones to the latest ones you suddenly uh your eye suddenly notices that there's some blue ones all right, and you can't miss them. I'm even scrolling past them so you can see what I'm talking about. But looking at those blue ones, you'll see that the topic was special fall feast eschatology show in times and what three Jewish feasts per Robert Van Campen. And there's five parts there. So I'll leave a link. I'll leave a link to. Well, the link is already in the uh, description in the of these videos as to reach how to reach the playlist. But have those videos a look see. All right, they're about they average about 15 minutes long each. Go back and watch those uh, in conjunction with what we're going to be talking about tonight. So let's turn now into the feasts of trumpets and its Christian significance. This is written by a gentleman by the name of David Kiern. I believe I'm saying his name right there. And let's just start reading. We might you we might be able to finish this. I don't think it's a very long one, but should be a fascinating look at. Perhaps Yeshua, when he said, no man knows the day of the hour, perhaps he wasn't saying that it's not that you're not going to know where when I'm coming, but based on the themes of scripture, based on the themes surrounding my, my parousia, I'm Yeshua talking, based on the signs that I already gave you and the indicators of when I'm, when it's going to be very, very close. And based on the fact that you can, to some degree, know the day when the, when my second coming takes place. In fact, we're going to find out that if you mark off the time frame when, and you would see this if you go back and watch those videos that I um, uh, highlighted here in my playlist. If you take the second coming on this chart, which shows up on the far right where it says kingdom, uh, running down the far right and yellow. If you take the second coming, not the rapture, 
but the second coming second coming which is at the far end of this of any seven 70th week of daniel chart the second coming which is basically agreed upon by the four basic views of rapture right pre-trib mid-trib pre-wrath and post-trib all of them at least locate the second coming at the farthest right the, the end of the seven years if you allow for the themes of the fall feast that we're going to read about to line your calendar up with that time of year when it's likely that Yeshua's second coming would coincide, and then you go backwards to kind of reverse engineer the seven years of 360-day prophetic one-year um, time frames and just multiply it by seven, well, you can also begin to gain a, a, an appreciation of when the covenant that Antichrist makes with Israel on the far left side of the screen would need to take place so that it would end exactly seven years later, seven prophetic years. Even the even our even our Gregorian calendar wouldn't be too far off using owing to the fact that it's not 360 days, but 365, 366, depending on leap years and things like that. But still pretty, pretty close. So um hope you guys aren't losing what I'm trying to say there. So with that, let's jump right into this commentary and read it right so let me back up and show you the title the feast of trumpets and it's christian significant by david kieran all right let's just start reading um this author says when grapes ripen on the vine pomegranates turn red on the tree and a slight chill fills the early morning air well then it means something special is almost here the fall feasts are about to begin yeah that's what he says okay he thought he was going to say something like christmas or something like that right all right let's keep reading friday night at sundown september 15th 2023 so he was he wrote this blog uh last year or the year prior and he's talking about the fall feast he said the first of the biblical fall feasts will begin with the date that he just showed you <coughs> excuse me date you just showed you here the fall, I'm sorry, the Feast of Trumpets, known by its Hebrew name as Yom Truah, is a festival which revolves around the around hearing the blast of the shofar connected with God and repentance. Notice right away, you're beginning to, if you know anything about the language surrounding rapture that is given by Yeshua and then picked up by Paul and then uh, carried over finally into parts of revelation there are trumpets associated with jesus return whether you're talking about rapture or you're talking about second coming there are trumpets related to not just his return but also trumpets related to the day of the lord in fact there are seven full trumpets given over to the judgments of god known as the wrath of god so paul picked up on yeshua's words by when jesus said in matthew that with the sound of a trumpet let me just show it to you again um backing up to verse 31 here and he will send forth his angels with what a great trumpet blast and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other so paul picks up on that in his thessalonian passages when he talks about with the trump with the voice of an arch archangel and the, the 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 voice of god and and so all the details that are picked up in either the Corinthians uh, 15 passage or the first uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 or the second Thessalonians chapter 5 and 6 he he uses trumpet language and he I believe he got it from Yeshua but he's also drawing from his rich knowledge of Jewish 
um, history of using trumpets for certain things. That's why he uses like at the last trump. Is he talking about the last trumpet in the book of Revelation series of the seven trumpets? Highly unlikely since Revelation hadn't been written yet. And so his readers wouldn't have been able to make any connection between last trump because that revelation was still coming in the form of the revelation given to John later on down the road. So it wouldn't really make much sense. It's kind of anachronistic to say that the last trump that Paul was referring to is the last trumpet of Revelation chapter, you know, the, tra- the chapters that, that de- highlight the uh, trumpet judgments, which I think it's right around uh, chapter 15 or something like that of Revelation 14, 15, somewhere in there, 16, maybe even. So let's go back over to this commentary. So the Feast of Trumpets takes place in the fall part of the year. So that's the, the we're going to run with this theme. Could the coming of Yeshua be near the fall part of a year? When Yeshua said, no one knows the day or the hour, was that a clue as to the timing? Not the exact day, but at least locating within a parameter of events that we're already familiar with that carry certain themes and characteristics uh, associated with those um, days, such as the fall festivals. Well, this author is going to say that it's a strong possibility. Um, I'm not going to put all my eggs on the ba- in, in one basket on this particular teaching that we're going to be studying tonight, but uh, I think for the sake of those of us who are uh, following after a Hebraic lifestyle and a Messianic perspective that do hold to a continued relevancy of the Torah in our lives as Christians, both Jew and Gentile, I think it's worth taking a look at this perspective one more time. Again, um, just a reminder that what we're going to be talking about was already touched at, touched on, in already looked at in, uh, in from a different author's perspective in my special fall feast eschatology show which i did way back four months ago i may rerun them coming up soon as a kind of a review uh, revisiting them which is always nice uh, just to give us a fresh perspective okay so the Feast of Trumpets is a festival which revolves around a hearing of the blast of the shofar connected with God and repentance. The day is, the day is also commonly called Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. But let's keep reading and find out some more details that are going to connect this part of the year to rapture or second coming. All of, the, of all the feasts, Yom Truah is the most concealed and shrouded mystery, whereas the other festivals commemorate an event from Israel's history or have specific religious purposes around them. God's people were not ready for this. They were not told the reason to celebrate Yom Truah in the scriptures. They were simply told to gather together and blow the shofar. In fact, Yom Truah means the day of the awakening trumpet blast. It doesn't mean the day of trumpets. The word trumpet there isn't um, the translation of Truah. It's it's one of the sounds of the shofar, Yom Truah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast. The, the day of this sound, which is a unique blast that Israel was trained to recognize when they heard it and as to when and why the shofar sounding might take place. Israel would have been aware that when they heard certain sounds, that there were actions associated with the sounds of the trumpet that they were to perform. So let's read about them. The sound of the shofar elevates the hearts of men and women with the sense that the king is what? Coming. The king is coming. Yes, the themes that are connected with the fall part of the year, which commence with the 
first of the three festivals in the end, right? We've got reading in chronological order. We've got Yom Tullah, or Rosh Hashanah is what it shows up on your calendar. We've got Yom Tullah, followed by Yom Kippur, 10 days later, followed by Sukkot, five days later. And so within a short amount of time, we have three feasts almost back to back, basically, that carry certain themes. And one of the main themes is that the king is a, the king is approaching, the king is returning, the king is coming. Prepare your heart. Awaken, O sleeper, is one of the primary themes of the Festival of Trumpets. The trumpet sound itself is a kind of an alarm to wake you up from your sleep. And we're not talking about physical sleep, and we're not even talking about sleep that is sometimes characterized in the Bible as death. Although, given the theme of resurrection and those that are will be awakened by, at the rapture slash resurrection, then that does fit there. But primarily what we're talking about is awake, oh, spiritual sleeper. And this alarm is really not just for the rest of the world, but it's primarily for Israel, which is why Israel needs to go into this time period so that she can be awaken from her spiritual slumber. Remember, national Israel is still in rejection and rebellion against God, rejection of God's Messiah, and rebellion against God in that they have rejected his means of salvation. So let's keep reading this author's um, notes here. Let's see if I can just go like that and then highlight it that way. He goes on to say that the most prominent activity of Yom Truah is the blowing of the shofar, i.e. the ram's horn, or I'm not going to be dogmatic and say it must be the ram's horn, given the fact that there are other places in Scripture that describe what's known as a metal trumpet. The Hebrew word is something like chazutzarah, and the Greek would be something like salpinx, if I if memory serves. So, a ram's horn in Hebrew is shofar, and uh, this is kind of contrasted with the uh, man-made version of a trumpet, which you could see today in any orchestra or band playing, which is kind of a silver or a brass-type instrument. Well, this author goes on to say that there are over 100 shofar blasts heard throughout the prayer services. If and we're talking about the day of the of trumpets service, if you've ever attended one. Um, so the the the, the shofar blowing uh, trumpets, uh, the shofar blowing uh, service, and it culminates. This author says with a final blast being known as quote the last trump end quote. So that's likely. The language that Paul picks up on, drawing from his rich knowledge of Jewish history, of course, being a Jewish man himself, then his knowledge would have served him well, right? His experience growing up in synagogue and learning the scriptures and understanding about the feasts which show up in Leviticus chapter 23 and other places of the Torah. He would have learned that God instructed Israel to blow shofars on certain special occasions, and therefore when Paul says the last trump, and he uses the definite article, both in the Greek as well as our translations into the English, the last trump would have meant something not just to Paul, but ostensibly to his readers, otherwise why would he write it leaving them in the dark? And as I already previously mentioned, to indicate that he's probably referring to the last of the seven trumpets which were found in the book of Revelation is highly unlikely, given that the book of Revelation hadn't even been written yet and distributed to the churches in the surrounding areas, and it would take some time for them to even be able to interpret and understand what John meant by all of the you know, apocalyptic literature uh, that is strewn throughout the book of Revelation. I mean, it's a it's it's one big um, 
uh, challenging letter, right? You know, today we've got the benefit of of centuries of study by Christian theologians, those who can read Hebrew, those who can read Greek, and we've also got the collection of all of the rest of the Bible that has been canonized so that when we read the book of Revelation, we can instantly thumb back to certain references and say, ah, that's probably what John was referring to. Ah, he's drawing from this book. Ah, he he's, he's uh, making a reference to this part of the Bible. But again, they didn't have all that in the first century yet, so it's highly unlikely that when when the um, churches that Paul was writing to, either the, either the church of Corinth or the church at Thessalonica, got his words on, hey, it's going to be at the last trump, and the it is in a reference to the resurrection, it's highly unlikely that they were thinking of the trumpets in the book of revelation that hadn't been written yet right i'm 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 just saying that that just doesn't make sense they weren't thinking of seven trumpets then all right so um we got the last trump and this author reminds us that this regal sound is a call to repentance that reaches the souls of all who hear with each blast denoting a sense of spiritual awakening all right let's keep um reading this author uh this author's commentary on the the fall feasts and their significance to christians based on biblical clues um, ancient biblical clues and ancient, based on biblical clues, ancient tradition, Jewish Jews today believe that God breathed life into Adam on Yom Tov. In the days of the Bible, this was the date on the calendar when the kings of Israel were crowned and took the throne. And the resurrection of the dead and complete and gathering of Israel are also tied to Yom Tov. So notice that even within standard rabbinic. Jewish understanding of the Bible, which is surface level at best, because they don't have the help of the Holy Spirit to give them a deeper level of understanding. But when they look at these festivals and they corroborate the themes surrounding these festivals with certain other themes that are presented in the Bible in other places of the Tanakh. Remember, they're not reading the New Testament. Rabbinic Judaism rejects the apostolic scriptures and does not espouse to a belief in Jesus as Messiah. Therefore, they're left in the dark. But there is a, a head knowledge of the Bible, and there's what I'd like to call intellectual nutrition that can be gained by studying through certain parts of the Bible. And when they read through the festivals, they do understand that the resurrection of the dead and the complete gathering of Israel are tied to Yom Tov, so this part of the year. So notice we're building up, using this author's uh, notes here, we're building up to this theme of rapture and the second coming, rapture, resurrection of the dead, the ingathering of Israel, etc., etc. Um, the author reminds us that today the Jewish people see Yom Tov as the day when the bridegroom will return for his bride. So again, Remember, the parousia of Yeshua, the second coming, or the coming of Yeshua, literally translated from the Greek as presence, the parousia is an event, it's a singular event, that is allowed to uh, entail maybe two primary um, itinerary days on that one event known as parousia. The singular event known as parousia. And again, I know some Bible teachers are going to say this is two comings of Christ. This is two returns, which the Bible doesn't teach. This is two comings of Christ. Um, and yet, no, we don't have to see it that way. We can see it as one coming, but two primary events associated with the coming. Just like, I mean, honestly, and uh, we've touched on this before, his first coming, right, when Yeshua came to the world the first time, had a number of primary events associated with it as well. We had the birth, which is highlighted in 
the Bible prominently in the Gospels, right? The birth of Yeshua is part of his first coming, his first parousia, and yet his coming into the world is not only characterized by his birth, right? We also have, jumping forward into the, the Gospel narratives, we also have the beginnings of his ministry. We have certain key miracles and events that take place during his ministry. And then, of course, leading up to the zenith of his first coming, which is his crucifixion and his resurrection. His death and resurrection and ascension are all key events tied to the first coming, the first parousia. It's a singular coming into the world, right? There's only one incarnation and one coming of Jesus into the world the first time. There's only one of them. And yet, it's broken down into several key events in the life of Jesus that cause us to realize that the Bible wants us to um, uh, not forget those key events. Again, the birth, the uh, death, the resurrection, the ascension, all of those are part of his first coming. With equal importance, it's not un. Um, imaginable to interpret the second coming as one singular event, and yet there are um, one singular um, prophecy, and yet there are some events at the very beginning of it, which we were, we're going to call rapture, and some events even in the middle part, um, but primarily the two main would be the rapture and the second coming. So, Yom Teruah, it's the time when the bridegroom will return. And when we say re return, we're just looking at the singular event. But we're also remembering that, and I have to in, in, interject, that when we're looking at the Bible as a whole, we have to remember that there's the part that is visible and on the surface level, and the part that is explicit, which is God's covenant plans and relationship with Israel, the covenant people the children of Abraham. That's the part that is visible to most when you read the Bible from cover to cover. And when I say cover to cover, I mean both testaments, both parts of your Bible. Don't just stop in the middle like Jewish, Jewish people do. And don't just start in the middle like many Christians do. Read from, from start to finish. Well, God's covenant with Israel is more kind of um, um, out in the open. Um, but the parts that were kind of hidden from Israel's perspective in, and shrouded in mystery were the parts that we describe as the church, the mystery of the Gentiles, the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. So when we're talking about that part that is hidden in mystery, i.e. the Christian church or the body of Messiah, well then it makes sense that when we're talking about Yeshua returning to planet Earth to rescue and gather the elect and, the, and those who are his own, we have to also allow for part of his return to greatly impact that part of of uh, the bible that is referring to the remnant and referring to the body of messiah aka the christians i, I in other words the mysterious part of the bible that would primarily be located within the rapture but then we also have to simply allow the clock that was that began with Daniel's 70th week prophecy to run its course and finish out dealing with Israel as a people group which won't be until finally the end of the 70th week and the return or the second coming of Christ there 
So are you following along what I'm saying? We have two primary themes that are also portrayed by the rapture and the second coming, which deal with two different people groups. The rapture deals primarily with the Gentile Christian church, and the second coming deals primarily with Israel, covenant Israel, the ethnic Israel, unbelieving Israel, national Israel, who by the time Yeshua is ready to make his descent to planet Earth and allow his feet to touch down on the Mount of Olives, at that point in time, Israel will have been broken. Her back will have been broken. Her stubbornness will have been removed from her, and she's ready to meet her king. All right, so that's the themes that we're looking at. This author says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. He's quoting a passage here. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth from his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Right? That's Joel chapter 2. So what's the Christian significance of these uh, festivals and how are they important when we're studying eschatology, end-time events? All right. He reminds us that Christians see the, Bible, the biblical holiday, holidays as foreshadows of the work of the Messiah, what he has accomplished, and what he will accomplish in the future. And he just um, drills it down for us or nails it, uh, bring, brings it, makes it more explicit. While the spring feasts look back at Yeshua's first coming, which they do, the fall feasts look forward to his second coming. Oh, yes, they do. Now, we're again, we're kind of playing with the uh, verse where Yeshua says, and I'll scroll down to the section, starting in Matthew 24, verse 36. But about that day, which day, as I pause, according to my understanding of the Bible and Yeshua's chronology, he's talking about the day of the rapture, the day of the initiation of the day of the Lord, the day of his pouring out his wrath upon wicked humanity. But first, he must rescue the righteous from the clutches of the great tribulation else there would be no righteous to rescue because Antichrist would wipe them all out. But Yeshua says those days are going to be shortened. So he begins to describe this gathering of the elect and the return of Christ in the air on the clouds to snatch away, to rapture us, to be uh, gathered unto himself from, the, um, uh, from, from out of harm's way. And that's the context where he says in verse 36, but about that day, meaning the day of rapture, the day of resurrection, the initiation of the day of the Lord, the initiation. In the broader context, the day that he's referring to is really the day of the Lord, which is spoken of all throughout the Tanakh. The Old Testament talks about the day of the Lord over and over again to national Israel. So they know what, and they know a lot of the details uh, that are going to take place on the day of the Lord and during the day of the Lord, punishment to the wicked Gentile nations, um, bringing Israel to a place of repentance, etc., etc. They know about that, but they don't know when that day is going to happen. They don't know when. So the timing is hidden from them. And then likewise, Paul locating the rapture slash resurrection on the front end of the day of the Lord, the, the very initiation of it, likewise, lets us know that because of mystery that um, we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. Yeshua says that day and hour no one knows. They don't know when it's going to initiate. But going back now to what this author is um, going to be uh, teaching us, perhaps we can know the general approximation, the season. And in fact, we only don't know exactly in advance when the day is going to be initiated. But everyone in the world will know after the fact 
right? Stop and think about that for a second. Yeshua says no one knows the day of the hour, not the angels and, and not even myself. The son doesn't even know. But that's only before it happens. After the rapture happens, no matter if you place it as a pre-tribber, mid-tribber, a pre-rather, or post-tribber, it doesn't matter. After it happens, right? After it happens. Ready for this? After the rapture takes place, and after the believers are snatched away, and after the day of the Lord initiates, every single person in the world, both believing and non-believing, will know the day and the hour of the rapture. Hello, Jesus will know, the angels will know, and every single human being will know because it won't be a secret event. You know, you know, millions of people will have disappeared from planet Earth, and millions of people, billions of people will have not disappeared. I think that's going to make headlines everywhere in the world, right? Hello. So Jesus will have known because he's already initiated the the, the coming. He's already performed uh, his duty there. He's raptured the church. And the angels will have known because they blew the trumpets and things like that. And the world will have known because they were front row seat to um, the separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. So it's only and it's only before the event takes place that we don't know. But afterwards. Everybody will, will know. Well, given that reality, right, that's just common sense. Given that reality, we will then be able to look back at what day that happened and maybe mark it on our calendar and go, hey, that took place on Yom Kippur. What a really neat coincidence. That took place on um, Yom Tovah or Yom Kippur or Sukkot or on X day of the Jewish calendar. Just like we can now know with 100% certainty that Yeshua was crucified on Passover. Right or, or close there out. Right. Some people say it was a day before. Some people say it was the week of, maybe a few days earlier, the Wednesday following the Friday or the Saturday or whatever. Some people say it was right on the same day. Um, some people say it was the Thursday before the Friday or whatever you call it. But either way, what we can say now is that it was right around that time. And so, with that same amount of certainty, this author is going to build a case for the fact that after the fact then we will we'll be able to say, hmm, I guess it really was. God was telling us all along that it was right on these certain calendar days and we just didn't pay attention. But we don't know with 100% certainty. We can't set the date before it takes place. But we can make some approximations and say, you know, if Scripture is consistent, if God's going to hold with the same themes that he did at the first coming, uh, that he's going to do at the second coming, if he keeps up, if he keeps those themes uh, right alongside of what has already been paralleled by the festivals, then... We've got a good, um, a good uh, assumption that we can make um, a good. We can make a good bet that it's going to take place at this particular time, et cetera, et cetera. So let's keep reading. Um, we will. Um, we might finish this part tonight. We might not. It's kind of short, but we'll see what happens. Uh, this author goes on to say that after Pentecost, there's a long summer break. So he started by reminding us about the, the spring feast. And then at the middle, between the spring and the fall feast, we've got this long summer break where there's Pentecost before the next biblical point in time. This is prophetic for the time in which we live now. Right, the times of the Gentiles, the um, fullness of the Gentiles that needs to be brought in. Since Messiah's atonement, this long period of... Uh, I'm sorry, of the time in which we lead up now since Messiah's atonement. Uh, this long period of time will suddenly come to an end when the blast of the trumpet sounds. So again, this corresponds with the seven feasts of the Lord, where we've got a clustering of three feasts during the fall, during the spring, and then there's a kind of a... a um, uh, a space between the spring and the fall, which is occupied by uh, Pentecost or Shavuot in the middle, 
and the, which is the author saying that we are kind of in that middle part now where we've already had our Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now we're in that long break, the summer break between Pentecost and the fall feast. Let's keep uh, reading. He goes on to remind us that followers of Jesus see Yom Tov as the future day when the, quote, last trump, end quote, will sound. Yeshua will again set feet on this earth. The faithful will be resurrected. And the long-awaited king of Israel will sit on the throne of his father, David. And then we've got another quote from the Bible. For the Lord himself shall come down from heaven with a commanding shout. This is Paul's word. These are Paul's words. Uh, with the voice of the ark. I believe this is the Thessalonian passage. With the voice of the archangel and with the blast of God's shofar. And the dead in Messiah shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left behind, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, very famous passage. By the way, Paul used the phrase, then we who are alive and left behind. Not to be confused, the left behind phraseology there, not to be confused with Yeshua's version of left behind when he says, there will be two in one spot, one will be taken, the other will be left. He doesn't mean left behind Yeshua doesn't mean left behind, I believe, for judgment. I'm sorry, left behind in rapture, the way that Paul's saying left behind in this passage. I think what Paul's in context with Paul is saying that um, we who are alive and left behind, if this is the, the version of the Bible that you're reading, I mean, there's all the ways to read this passage. Left behind here is simply a reference to um, those of us who were not... Um, dead in christ and needed to be resurrected first he's simply describing the order go back and read all of first uh, corinthians 15 and he talks about the order of the resurrection how that it is the dead who will rise first and then we who are alive i.e the ones who are left behind um, will then rise second or rise up into the air second so that's all the left behind language means there he even clarifies it by saying that we'll be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds. So clearly left behind in this Thessalonian passage is not left behind for judgment because they, that he says we'll be caught up together with them. Who is the them? The them is the resurrected in Messiah. So this author continues. Let's go like this one more time. It's easier for me to highlight as I read. We've got 10 minutes left in the study and I think I can finish this. This author says one more cool thing. The Feast of Trumpets is also called Yom HaKeseh. Now, what does that mean? It means the hidden day. Now, let's talk about this idea that when Yeshua said in Matthew, no man knows the day or the hour. Was he meaning at face value on surface level, an ordinary understanding of the words no one knows, that no one knows means no one knows? Or is it a code, a secret hint that actually there's a day that you should know? Let's talk about this possibility i don't know if i'm ready to agree that it's a strong probability but just follow along for a while and let's see how interesting this can this can get so this hebrew phrase yom hakeseh known as the hidden day it is the another nickname given to the feast of trumpets because this author says it's the only holy day designated designated by the lord to be kept on a new moon now, he's going to explain why this is relevant. In ancient Israel, sighting the small sliver of the new moon could be challenging and unpredictable. Unlike the other feast days, no one could precisely calculate the exact day or the hour. Did you catch it? 
the exact day or the hour the festival could begin. And that's why, as a side note, that even today, two days are reserved for the feast in case the moon isn't visible on the first night because of maybe clouds or something like that. So what this author is going to begin to do is remind us that when we look at all of the seven festivals in Leviticus chapter 23, they are um, they fall somewhere on a month that has already been identified and initiated by the sighting of the moon. On any given Jewish month, it's not that critical, per se, when the month starts. Could be on this day, it could be on the day after, based on the ancient moon sighting practice, which, like I said, on any given day, the moon could be obscured by the clouds, and also the new moon itself, if you've ever seen one, is barely a sliver of light in the sky uh, when it's even visible. So thus, um, allowing for maybe one day or the second day. But when we talk about the Yom Truah festival, which must commence at the beginning of a month, unlike any of the other festivals, which find their beginnings uh, somewhere in the middle of the month or something like that, Yom Truah has to not only begin at the beginning of the month, but also has to coincide with the moon sighting, which is already itself the beginning of the month. <coughs> so, the festival is designated by the moon sighting, and the month itself is designated by the moon sighting, or, or um, uh, marked out, recognized to be the moon sighting. So, let's keep reading this uh, somewhat fascinating detail that could be a hint of what Yeshua meant, or Yeshua could be hinting at this very occurrence. So, this author says that when the disciples asked Yeshua what will be the sign of his coming, he told them, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, except the Father alone. Right? Matthew 24. Around verse 30, starting in verse 31 or so. In fact, let me just pull it up to make sure. We're starting in verse 36. So this author continues, This saying is one of the many reasons why believers today connect the Feast of Trumpets with Yeshua's return. So, um, Again, I'm not being dogmatic that this is absolutely critical code word, buzzword. Hey, hello, Yeshua's trying to, like, he, you know, he, he, when he stated those words, he kind of gave this nod and a wink to his disciples. No one knows the day or the hour. And he looked at his disciples like, wink, wink, nod, nod, his Jewish believers. And as if the Gentile people listening to his teachings those days and reading his words after the fact were completely in the dark. And he's only given this secret code to the Jewish people. Uh, seems unlikely, but I mean, it's it's interesting nonetheless, and and I could be wrong because we don't know the exact day, and again, but we will know the exact day after the fact. I mean, everybody's going to know after the fact when the rapture took place, and then we'll be able to say, "Wow, it did take place on Yom Tov." You know, go figure. The the Yeshua was all along. He was hinting at when he said, "No one knows the day." He really was talking about, "Hey, you guys should have known exactly when. You should have been really ready." But we don't need that cryptic kind of, um, you know, cracker back, cracker jacks, cracker jacks box, box uh, decoding type of um, uh, theology. We can actually just look at the other more obvious um, indicators when the time of Yeshua's return is near. But let's uh, just look at the author's conclusion. Um, he says, Shalom and Shana Tovah, good new year to you and to your family. 
Uh, I should have just read that earlier since it's kind of I kind of destroyed the 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 the, the kind of climax he was building up to. But uh, the fall feasts are here. Order I am Israel products today and gift them to your friends, family, or entire congregation. Save ten percent with your checkout code Judea David Kern, and then you can see a, a, a copy of his book there. Uh, um, I am Israel, the Believer's Guide to the Rebirth of the Promised Land. So. Read more about the Biblical Feasts of Israel in our new hardcover coffee table book, I Am Israel, The Believer's Guide to the Birth, Rebirth of the Promised Land. Shop this book. And then you have some other bit of decorate your home for the Feast of the Lord. Explore our home decor collection. And then there's a link. So thank you, um, uh, uh, Mr. Kern, for allowing us to use this uh, resource. No, I didn't contact him. He didn't contact me. I just used this um, because I felt that it might be helpful. Uh, so if he ends up watching this video, uh, this is not an endorsement of his products uh, and or anything uh, like that. And I wasn't slamming his particular view. I actually think that, and let me just scroll back to the top so you can see the title of this teaching in case you want to Google search it. Uh, I'll leave a link for it in the description. Um, but the feasts of trumpets and its Christian significance, again, like I've mentioned in the past, as we're, and we're drawing to our study to a close with this, I believe that it is possible that Yeshua meant that. But at the very least, even if he wasn't speaking in code where he says, hey, you should know exactly when I'm going to return because I'm giving you a, a hint in code. Even if that's not what he meant, he did, did still give us a great number of signs leading up to his return so that we can have an approximation of the season surrounding his return and thus prepare our hearts and make our um, get our business in order so that we can be um, ready to meet our Lord. And again, we don't want to be like the foolish virgins in the parable that's going to follow in matthew 25 who didn't have oil for their lamps so when the bridegroom came they were unprepared we don't want to be like those who are asleep those who were unprepared to meet the master when he returns we also don't want to be those wicked servants as we're going to as we if we were to read matthew 25 24 and 25 those types of wicked servants who are um, going about our daily business and not using the talents that the Lord gave us. They're not watching and waiting for the master to return. Um, and thus, they are going to be in a place where Yeshua is going to um, not just disappoint them, but some of them might find themselves to be among those who are just professing believers, meaning their hearts have betrayed them because they didn't make sure, they didn't know that they know that they know that Jesus is Lord and therefore have an uh, awareness of his returning and an expectation. So um, that's really what we've uh, what we need to glean from this part of Yeshua's uh, teaching and th things like the commentary that we just read. Right? Should we be date setting? No, we shouldn't. Um, but should we simply throw our hands up and say, "Well, since no one knows the day or the hour, well then let's just." Let's just roll the dice and um, hope that it doesn't land on the day when I've got a, an important business deal, right? I hope Yeshua doesn't interrupt my wedding, right? I hope Yeshua doesn't interrupt, um, you know, the uh, uh, the promotion that I'm looking forward to or something like that. No, that's the wrong-headed mindset, right? Um, Jesus' soon approach, soon return, means that we should be about our Father's business, not about our own business. As If we're genuine believers, if we're true then we aren't those who are um, what we would call in the dark that Paul's going to talk about in Thessalonians. We are children of the light. And so let's act like children of the light and um, prepare our hearts and uh, prepare our lives to, to meet our great 
uh, Lord and King. And with that, we'll draw this part of our study to the close. And essentially, um, as I'm looking at the, just some flashing through some of the graphics that we've been looking at, I think that um, we actually might be ready to turn, let's go back to this slide. We might actually be ready unless the Lord tells me or gives me an indication that we want to look at Thessalonians real quick, but I think we might be ready next week to actually dive into topic 10 and start looking at rapture views and begin with an overview of the different rapture views and then just take our time going through those different views and then make a case for the pre-wrath view and then rapture views the final analysis. I think we might be ready to go in that direction either next week or the week next, depending on if I take a break next week, uh, depending on what my calendar looks like. I don't think that we'll take a break next week, but there could be a possibility that we might. Um, so we'll see. But that'll do it for Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is a look at the Trinitarian perspective as contrasted against the Unitarian perspective in which we believe, we Trinitarians believe that God is one, yet God is three. 
By contrast, the Unitarian position, particularly the Biblical Unitarian position, is that God is one and only one, and numerically one with himself, and therefore there are no other gods, and yet there are also no other persons. And we've been specifically looking at Proverbs 8.23, which is found on BiblicalUnitarian.com's website, which I've got pulled up in front of you right now. It's a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Biblical Unitarian maintains that Proverbs in 23, which describes the wisdom of God, is not and a picture of the Son of God in his pre-incarnate form. And they don't believe it is a description or portrayal of a creature known as, the, later to become known as Jesus, but known as the Word of God, who was created by God for the express purpose of creating the known universe in the world, like the Jehovah's Witnesses maintain. Instead, Biblical Unitarian simply says, their argument is, is primarily twofold, and it's very simple and to the point, Number one, wisdom is an eternal attribute of God, and God has always possessed this attribute because he is eternally unchanging, and he is eternally wise. He cannot be um, in a place where he was not in possession of any of his attributes because of his, because of his eternal nature. Therefore, he didn't need to create wisdom, no matter what the language seems to be indicating in its poetic form, like we're going to read here in a moment. So they say, number one, this is a description of the of an attribute of God, wisdom. And number two, the writer to the book of Proverbs, which we say is Solomon, is simply using a literary device known as personification, where he takes an attribute of God and he personifies it, gives it an, an identity, as it were, uh, you know, gives it arms and legs, anthropomorphically, as it were, and speaks of it in a way and as if it's a, a separate person. But it truly isn't another person. It's not personhood. It's personification. So those are the two um, aspects that Biblical Unitarian highlighted in their very, very short interpretation and in, in a short essay of this verse. By contrast, the Biblical Unitarian position is the Biblical Trinitarian position is also twofold. Number one, to agree with Biblical Unitarian that wisdom can is in fact an eternal attribute of God, we Trinitarians have no problem with that, and to relegate wisdom in this passage to personification is also not a problem for Trinitarian theology um, because it doesn't detract from the idea that Jesus is still God incarnate simply by using a rhetorical device known as personification. There's there's nothing wrong with that, a rhetorical or literary device known as personification. It doesn't disagree. It's not in disagreement. It's not in um, disharmony with Trinitarian perspectives. So, what I want to do tonight, real quick, in closing, because I think I'm going to be able to read all of the um, conclusion and finish this out tonight, and thus, the next time we meet, which might be next week, but it might be the week following right? I haven't decided yet that if we're going to meet for certain this week, but those of you who are watching my YouTube videos um, uh, and those of you who are in my live studies, be prepared that there's a strong possibility that we might not meet next week and that it's instead during that break, let me just flash a uh, another uh, picture on the screen for those of you who are following the second study. What I might do next week in the place of the live study is re-air on my YouTube channel, the uh, special Fall Feast Eschatology show that I aired uh, four months ago. I might re-air that so that uh, people who are following the eschatology study can follow along with the um, 
uh, the teaching that was put out at that time. And again, uh, we're not talking about, I'm talking about not during the week, because I'm going to air this live show during the week. I'm talking about the week following that, because if there's no live show, then I have to air something. So that's what I'm referring to. Okay, and those of you who are with me in the live class, just watch your emails or watch your newsletter uh, to see if I announce whether or not we're going to have a show next week, the live show. But going back to Biblical Unitarian and uh, Proverbs 8.23, let's real quick read the English, not the Hebrew, but the English of Proverbs 8.1 down through verse 25. And I'm doing this just so we can get in context because I believe I will be able to finish this out tonight. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to primarily read without stopping. Number one, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the highest, on top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates at the opening to the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out. And here's her cry. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. She continues in verse 5. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. I'm reading from the NESB version of the Bible. In verse 6, she continues. Listen, for I will speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. Verse 7, her words. For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. She continues in verse 8, All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing crooked or perverted in them. Verse 9, she continues, They are all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Verse 10, she says, Take my instruction and not silver, and acknowledge, I'm sorry, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. And then she says in verse 11, For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. In verse 12, she says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. And let me interject. If wisdom is Jesus, then who is prudence? Is prudence God? I mean, if wisdom is Jesus, uh, in his pre-incarnate state, like some hardcore Trinitarians would say, without allowing for a possibility that wisdom is merely personification or an attribute of God, then wisdom dwells with prudence. Who is prudence? <laughs> right? Is it, um, so, just kind of uh, humorously interjecting that. All right. Uh, in verse 13, uh, wisdom says, Quotes, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. She continues, counsel is mine, in verse 14, counsel is mine, and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine. Notice her words are really reminiscent of language that God himself uses in other parts of the Bible. Right? He speaks of this exclusive um, power and knowledge and um ways in which we are to appreciate not just God's attributes, but appreciate God's character based on the way God describes himself and his attributes, and and to know that the God that we serve is an exclusive God based on his identity and based on his power and his attributes. And of course, this is picked up in the Apostolic Scriptures, aka the New Testament, when Yeshua also uses certain um, exclusive language to refer to himself in ways that 
we can't ignore are reminiscent of ways that God the Father has already described himself. Yeshua says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, he says, I am salvation. I am the, the exclusive way to the Father. I am the true bread come down from heaven. I am um, uh, um, he who has seen the Father exclusively, the face of the Father, and things like that. Well, this lets us know that Yeshua occupies a place in creation that is quite unique. Even if you say he's a human being, <coughs> excuse me, you still have to acknowledge the fact that he is the most unique human being ever created, if indeed you relegate him to a mere human, which I, I myself do not. Let's keep reading uh, Proverbs. Wisdom continues, verse 15, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. Verse 16, By me princes rule and nobles all who judge rightly. Uh, verse 17, Wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Again, sounds like words that Yeshua and God alone have uh, echoed. So, is wisdom a second person of the Trinity? Is wisdom God? Is wisdom uh, Jesus uh, uh, in before his pre-incarnate? Well, that's the question. Those are the questions we're dealing with, and we'll I'll tell you what my conclusion is when I read through it. Verse eighteen, uh, wisdom says, "Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness." Verse 19, wisdom says, my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choicest silver. Notice that wisdom is letting us know that no matter which way you interpret her as an eternal attribute of God, as personification, or as the pre-incarnate Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate Son of God, no matter which way you look, wisdom is a person or a being or an, an, an attribute or an aspect of um, um, a quality, something that is desirable and something that can be and should be acquired. Wisdom is not simply saying to everyone, hey, look how great I am, but but too bad you can't have any of it. No, on the contrary, wisdom is saying, seek me, search after me, find me, acquire me. You need me, you mere human beings. You want what I have because I have it all, right? Um, you know, all that is um, desirable in life comes from me and all that is lasting and um, righteous and true and um, worth living for. I've got it. I've got the goods. You know, come seek after me. And this is in contrast to the wicked woman who shows up in the book of Proverbs as well. The harlot that Solomon warned his son away from, right? She's the one that on the outside, everything looks beautiful and desirable, sensuous and lustworthy. But she's death walking, right? She's death in a skin suit. You don't want to go to her because you will lose your life and possibly your very soul. So, so, so Solomon warned his son away from that wicked woman in the book of Proverbs. But by contrast, Solomon is, is instructing his son to embrace Lady Wisdom. Let's continue. In verse 20, I think I read it, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. She says in verse 20, I'm sorry, yeah, she continues verse uh, 21, to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. And then we jump into the section that we've been looking at in my commentary. Quote, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. So if we're asking is if wisdom is Jesus, what does it mean that wisdom possessed 
uh, I'm sorry, what does it mean that God possessed wisdom before the creation of the universe? In verse 23, which is the, the primary verse, so I'll just highlight it so we can see it. From everlasting, I was established. Other versions say created or something like that. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. And that's where we get a lot of um, controversy or uh, differences of opinion. Was wisdom, is wisdom admitting that she was created by God? Right before the creation of the world, God whipped her up and then used her to create the rest of the world. Is she some agent that was utilized by God? And we already know that Jesus is given agency status in the apostolic scriptures alongside of God as a co-creator or as the creator. Since we're talking about one God, then in the mystery of God's un unity and plurality, we have one God who is the creator, and yet we have three persons that help with this creation and um give me a moment luke i'm gonna flash this graphic on the screen that i actually created finally um let me see where is it uh gosh what did i do with that is it in my downloads um yeah, I think this is the one. Uh, let's just open that. There we go. Um, all right, so bear with me. And so since Jesus is both the agent of God that was utilized by God to create the universe, but at the same time, he is very God, and thus he is the creator. Understand where I'm going with that? right it's the it's the mystery well then we can confidently say like this screen graphic is showing on the screen like you can see this is a screen grab that resembles the little um, motion graphic that i created that i use in my uh youtube videos and i i put it in post-production and so if you've never watched any of the videos you've, you're not seeing it if you only attend the live classes but i'm showing you the just the screen grab version now on the left side we've got god given the label creator given that title and underneath that label we have the three persons who are all god father son holy spirit equally god co-eternal consubstantial they're all god and yet there's only one god and he is the creator so who created the universe father son or holy spirit the answer to the question is yes right understand my answer and yet on, by contrast on this on the other side of the screen separated by that baby blue line running vertically from top to bottom, we have everything else, which is simply labeled creation. So Jesus, the Son, belongs on the left side of this chart because that's the way the New Testament portrays him. He is the creator, even though we also see language that places him as the agent of creation. And this bears relevance to our discussion about Proverbs and wisdom. So, verse 23, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. And then in verse 24, we're still reading down through Proverbs, just the first 25 verses of chapter 8. Wisdom says, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. And again, it, does this mean that wisdom had to be brought onto the scene? We're going to find out in my little conclusion that that's not the best way to understand this poetic parallelism. But when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. And then the last verse that I want to read uh, before I jump into my commentary 
is before the mountains were settled before the hills i was brought forth okay so that's the view of proverbs that we're working from this is simply the raw data that we just read from the passages uh, from the scriptures what we've learned again is that biblical unitarian says that proverbs is speaking about wisdom in as an attribute of god and they're merely using um personification which is common to hebrew literature poetic literature it's not anything new doesn't mean that proverbs is describing a pre-incarnate jesus or anything like that that's their perspective and the by uh, comparison I just realized we're not going to finish completely uh, this study this week because we still want to read the other version of the Trinitarian perspective. But we're going to finish my own essay tonight, which is that Trinitarians believe, a good number of them believe, that wisdom is, in fact, Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. And it's not merely personification uh, or not merely an attribute of God, rather, uh Solomon was writing about Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, but the 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 fact that he calls wisdom his sister uh, a sister or lady and he uses um, feminine uh, pronouns is borne out because or is uh, uh, simply because the Hebrew word chokma is a feminine word in the Hebrew language, but it doesn't mean that wisdom is a woman actually. Okay, so. Having said that, let's turn now to my own commentary, uh, the short little essay that I put together, and I'll conclude this study tonight. We've got like 12 minutes left in the study, and then I'll conclude it with this short summary and conclusion that I put together. And what I did through the commentary, which is only available exclusively in these YouTube videos, I did not upload it to my website for the fact that I want to drive uh, people to the uh, YouTube study exclusively to get this content. What I did earlier in the study is I purposely um, simplified the language of my essay so that it was extremely easy to comprehend the perspective that I was um, teaching. And I did this because uh, this topic is quite complex when we're talking about the ontological nature of God, unity, trinity, one God, three persons, etc., etc. So, given that reality, I, I took an, a, an opportunity to do something I don't normally do, and I, 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 uh, I'm avoiding the word dumbed down, but I took the language and really just made the sentence structures very simplified. I simplified the, the, the structure of, of the commentary the essay but for the purpose of the summary and the conclusions i reverted back primarily to more of my main style of um a little bit more uh intricate a little bit more complex a little bit more kind of scholarly sounding language so it's gonna it's gonna stylistically it's gonna look a little bit different so that's your fair warning all right let's read this uh summary let's read i go on to say within the tapestry of sometimes <clears throat> excuse me Let's try that one again. Within the tapestry of sometimes widely varying Christian theological perspectives on the exact nature of God, one specific interpretation of Proverbs 8.23 emerges as a viewpoint that has withstood the test of time. And I say that that is the Trinitarian understanding. And I say that because even though the non-Trinitarian perspectives 
made their entry into Christian history during the early patristic era when there was a lot of heavy theological going back and forth and finalizing of what do we make of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it took some time for the articulation of the early church fathers in Christianity to come up with what we now know as the creeds and the doctrine, the doctrinal statements that were so popular in churches and things like that. It took a while for that that language to develop and come into its own. So what we did have is these intense struggles between um, non-Trinitarian perspectives and Trinitarian perspectives very early on about how to, what do we make of God, what do we make of Jesus, what do we make of the Holy Spirit, and what ended up um, coming out as the champion and the top views are the, in other words, the majority perspectives, came to be known as the Trinitarian perspectives, which we now read in the creeds, right? the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasius' Creed, the, the Nicene Creed, and things like that, that you're fond of reading, or, or some of you have memorized. Well, uh, I guess I'm simply trying to highlight the fact that the Trinitarian perspective is not the only historical perspective on the scene in Christianity. And thus, today, we do recognize that there are a number, we Christians recognize that there are a number of non-Trinitarian groups out there <clears throat> that have a an opinion and a voice that they would like to be heard. And so I'll flash a little screen and post production that shows you kind of a list of some of them. And Biblical Unitarian is simply one of the many, right? Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, Iglesia Christo, uh, uh, Worldwide Church of God or something like that, Church of God, uh, other non-Trinitarian groups out there. So let's keep reading my commentary. I go on to say that this view that I'm referring to, um, this view posits that the wisdom of God personified in this verse, we're talking about the um, the Trinitarian position. The Trinitarian view posits that the wisdom of God personified in this verse is, got a typo there, it says non-other, but it should say none I guess that is right. Yeah, none. It's not in, in none. Non. None. None other than the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So that's going to be the position that I'm not going to say is the only position I hold to as a Trinitarian. I think there is value, as we're going to find out, in the personification and uh, recognize that wisdom is an attribute of God. I'm simply saying that. Um, we can carry through to, uh, as we read on through the rest of the Bible into the Apostolic Scripture, we can carry along the what was begun in the Tanakh into our understanding of the Apostolic Scriptures and affirm that Jesus is very wisdom personified. He is the wisdom of God, because the Bible says He is. The New Testament part. Let's keep reading. I go on to say that the Son, according to this perspective, right, the Trinitarian perspective, he isn't a mere creature, like the Jehovah's Witnesses slash our Arians say, Arianism teaches. On the contrary, he is eternally, quote unquote, begotten by the Father, which is to say, existing in a state of co-eternality and co-equality. So, yes, Jesus is begotten, but that eternal begetting is not something that was marked out in time so as to suggest a beginning for Jesus. He was not created. I go on to say that this interpretation of Trinitarian theology doesn't arise from a solitary verse, however, but rather from a careful exegesis of the subject of wisdom of Proverbs 8.23 and how it has been woven into the broader fabric of biblical revelation. And so I think that is a very, very um, important point to make when we're talking about understanding mysteries that were hidden 
from the readers of the Tanakh period, only to be later revealed after the Incarnation. It means that we need all of the Bible to inform us on the these such mysteries. And unfortunately, as I'm going to maintain over and over again, Biblical Unitarian kind of cuts themselves short by only... Um, by only appropriating the Tanakh's perspective of who God is. Let's keep reading my notes here. I go on to say that since a powerful argument for the Trinitarian view of Proverbs 8.23 lies in its seamless alignment with the wider tapestry of Scripture, I go on to say that the biblical student of Scripture can then begin to affirm the truth that the New Testament consistently depicts the Son as occupying a space beyond mere creation. Go back and read some of the, the, the sayings. I'm going to do this as a separate study one of these days. Um, about all the places where Yeshua talks about how that he came from heaven. Uh, his point of origin right how that he is the only one that came that ascended to heaven because he's the only one who descended from heaven meaning in his resurrected bodily state when he talks about ascending to heaven he first came from heaven to earth and yet normal human beings like me and like you and those of, of you know every other person on planet earth we can't say that we came from heaven Perhaps we were in the mind of God, who dwells in heaven, before God created us and brought us through um, the birth process that all humans go through. And yet, Yeshua is unique. He clearly describes himself as his point of origin coming from heaven. Yes, he came through the birth process like we did, but he is letting us know that he was existent in heaven as a person, not just a thought of God like the biblical Unitarian wants to imagine you, Jesus was. He was a thought that existed in the mind of God instead of an actual person. So, he occupies a space beyond mere creation, I went on to say. He is the very image of the unseen God, explicitly stated in Colossians 1.15. He is the radiant expression of His glory, which is stated in Hebrews 1.3. He is the spoken word made flesh in John 1.1. And He is the very essence of divine wisdom, where? In 1 Corinthians 1.24. So, we don't need to guess about Yeshua's identity. We don't need to, to strip him of his high Christological position as being a, a person of the Godhead, yet very one with God in nature. Right? We don't need to do that to him, because the New Testament gives us ample opportunity to come to the proper conclusion that Jesus is very God, even if the words don't come out of his mouth. I am God, like the opponents of trinitarian theology like to um bring out over and over again right straw man theology uh, let's keep reading i go on to say that such depictions like i like i just um highlighted in the passages they leave no room for doubt the sun far from being created stands co-eternal and co-equal with the father father and son are um both in the same spot when it comes to being God, just like I showed you in that previous graphic. Let's continue. I go on to say that the Trinitarian interpretation of Proverbs 8.23 transcends mere consistency. It resonates deeply with the very bedrock of Christian faith. 
by identifying the wisdom of God with the Son, this understanding, I say, seamlessly dovetails with the doctrine of the Trinity carefully articulated by the early church fathers, and I just named two of them, such as Athanasius and Augustine. So it's important to know that, yes, the Bible is the starting point of Christian uh, theology and Christology, but it's not um, it's not wrong to root a lot of your uh, Christology in church, uh, early church teachings and early church uh, doctrine as well, because the Holy Spirit was still working with uh, the early church leaders in formulating not just the Bible in its canonization stages, but also working with the early church fathers to help um, uh, finally solidify the language that would be later known as Trinity. Indeed, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, which, again, opponents like to point out over and over again. But it's not necessary. We have to realize that the Bible has its own unique sort of what I might call proprietary way of um, articulating itself, describing itself, the language that it employs, but it suits God's purposes. And yet, at the same time, the Holy Spirit um, would carry those words of God into the hearts of those early um, church fathers and allow them to um, add words, not to the Bible, but to the language of Christianity that would forever um, be utilized by Christians down through the ages so that we can have a better way of describing God and not be left always with what I like to call information limitation or ambiguity or um, equivocation. Sometimes the Bible just gives us the bare bones uh, of a truth, but it doesn't uh, flesh it out and, and articulate it. And we have to sometimes wrestle and, uh, with that truth and say, what do you mean, Lord? Tell me, what do you mean? We have kind of a, a conviction in our heart, but we don't have the language sometimes to back up that conviction in a very explicit way or unambiguous way. Um, thus, um, we have to disambiguate those passages using, um, obviously, the power of the Holy Spirit within us, but also simply just um, relying on the, um, the Bible as our foundation, as well as the um, help of that the Holy Spirit provided to those church fathers. So that's kind of where I'm hinting. I go on to say that, speaking of the church fathers, their affirmation of the Son's co-eternal generation echoes through the centuries, right down to today, solidifying this interpretation, I say, as the cornerstone of Orthodox Christian belief. What is more, so we're reading my own essay, that which is not available online anywhere. It's only available here in this uh, YouTube um, commentary. What is more, I'm going to say, this continuity with historical theology underscores the profound resonance of this interpretation with the core tenets of the faith that we have as Christians. And then I just realized that for some reason I forgot to um, uh, make the... Uh, um, Justification here in the part that's in blue, it's not center justified, but uh, in this, in some parts, it is center justified. So just ignore some of my um, uh, formatting there. We can, it, it's still, you can still read it, right? Let's keep going. I shouldn't have even told you that. Now you're gonna be like, wow, that doesn't look right. Uh, I go on to say that as previously uh, mentioned throughout the course of this short essay. Proverbs 8.23, these are my own words, Proverbs 8.23 has been interpreted in different ways throughout 
the history of Christian theology, both within Orthodox Christian circles, and I have to be honest, as well as outside of them. So even though I am a Christian, I, I bill myself as an Orthodox Trinitarian version of a Christian. But that's not to say that there aren't other versions of Christianity that exist. And I'm not even ready to um, go down the path that maybe some um, church fathers did in seeking to excommunicate those who hold a slightly different form of Christology, like a lower version of Christology. I'm not ready to pass judgment on them uh, as individuals. I can say this comfortably, however that the theology that non-Trinitarians hold to ultimately could end up leading them down a path where they might deny God's um, true nature and deny even the efficacy of the salvation that God um, afforded us through the um, the uh, sacrifice of His Son. They might, they might end up putting themselves in a position where they will deny even Christ later on with their non-Trinitarian viewpoints on God. So I think that the excuse me that the theology of non-trinitarians is a dangerous theology to dabble in. It's a dangerous theology to um, investigate and to um, to affirm or to lay hold of or to claim as your form of of uh, Christology or Christianity uh, Christian teaching. So this is that's to you Unitarians out there, those non-trinitarians. Yes, you might be genuinely saved. Or you might not be, and, and you've been fooled by your own human reason, and the non-Christological, non-Trinitarian perspectives of God have led you to a place where you've got a surface head knowledge version of Jesus as the Messiah, and in the end, you might end up being one of those who says, whom the Lord says to on Matthew 25, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, do that? Didn't we believe in your name? Didn't we make mir- have miracles and cast out demons and blah, blah, blah? And Jesus is going to look at you and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Why didn't you ever know Jesus? Because you didn't truly allow the Bible to inform you of who Jesus truly is. So, just better, you, you got to be sure. Um, let's keep reading my commentary here. I go on to say that germane to this point about um, locating the, 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 the knowledge of the, the um, identity of who Jesus truly is within not just the Bible, but also within Orthodox Christian um, uh, historical circles. Germane to this point, one could say that the very fact that we have to undertake an examination of this passage from the perspective of biblical Unitarianism, underscores this reality. What reality? The reality is that there are different perspectives on who Jesus truly is, as if the Bible wasn't enough for us. The Bible truly is all that we need. I'm going to go on to talk about uh, Sola Scripture and Tota Scripture in this summary here, but just to let you know, hey, at the end of the day, the Bible is the final authority. That's what I mean by uh, sola scriptura. I don't mean that we only use the Bible. We can use Christian commentaries. That's fine. We should be using Christian commentaries. But the point I'm trying to say is at the end of the day, there's only one final authority. Let's keep reading. I go on to say that unlike the argument championed by biblical Unitarianism, which uh, I'm just giving you a summary now, which limits wisdom to an attribute of God by use of a literary device known as personification, an orthodox I go on to say an orthodox, read here as biblical when I say orthodox, an orthodox Trinitarian articulation of Proverbs 8.23 maintains that the wisdom of God mentioned in this verse, whether using the ancient Hebrew poetic art of personification 
or instead using a more direct prophetic approach. So either way, you uh, whichever one you um, kind of uh, prefer, either way, uh, th then it refers to the second person of the Trinity, i.e., the Son. That's that's my that's a pr an approach that I think is the w one of the strongest ways to view this particular passage. I'm going to say that this understanding is based on the fact that the New Testament expressly states forthrightly that the Son is the image of the invisible God and the radiance of God's glory, like we read earlier uh, in the um, uh, in this little essay. Uh, I say that likewise the Son is also referred to as the Word and the wisdom of God. And of course, that's echoing back to what John already gave us in John 1.1. 1, 1. What is more, I go on to say that I have consistently and with a conviction argued, have consistently and with a conviction, I have consistently argued, I have consistently and with a conviction argued that the Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 is consistent with the rest of the Bible and the history of Christian theology, right? I connect both of those. Biblical theology, Christian theology, they go hand in hand if you understand them correctly. The early church fathers, like we already looked at, affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity and the eternal generation of the Son. So there's no need in our effort to try to supposedly um, go back to a better understanding of God by um, ignoring what the what the New Testament says, um, somehow affirming biblical monotheism like biblical Unitarian tries to do. There's no need for us to, in, the, in that effort, also bypass what history has supplied for us in the language of the Church Fathers. We can... Um, we can embrace the Bible as the sole authority, but we can also build on top of that as our foundation with what the church fathers have given to us. It's very valuable information that the Holy Spirit was working through them to, <clears throat> to give more articulation to this very, very difficult topic. I go on to say, and I'm going a little bit over, I just realized, but I do want to finish this part tonight. I go on to say that what we have learned through the course of this study, this is my summary, is that since the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 purports that the wisdom of God mentioned in this verse refers to an attribute of God rather than a person, and I go on to say that since according to this view, the Biblical Unitarian view, the wisdom of God that is personified in Proverbs 8 cannot be a distinct person of the Godhead, then in my understanding as an Orthodox Trinitarian who believes, again, Orthodox with a small o, I'm not an Orthodox Christian, I don't, I'm, I don't follow Greek Orthodoxy, that's not what I mean by the word Orthodox. If you're reading my commentary and you can see the words, it's a small o. I'm, I'm actually a Messianic Jewish Christian, which means I hold to a form of um, kind of a denomination that embraces the Hebraic roots of my faith, as well as uh, uh, con with a conviction I embrace the Apostolic Scriptures. So I believe in the total um, message of the Bible from Genesis all the way through, the, to, through to Revelation. So I'm not, I'm not an Orthodox, I'm not Greek Orthodox or any such um, uh, type of uh, denominational believer like that. I'm simply saying that Orthodox in its right um, theology sense of the word. Uh, so, in my understanding as an Orthodox Trinitarian who believes in both, and here's the, the, the terms I mentioned earlier, sola scriptura, quote-unquote, and tota scriptura, quote-unquote, which, uh, let me pause and, and interpret the terms for you in case you can't read Latin. Sola scriptura is interpreted uh, as 
literally we could translate it as scripture alone or solely scripture our word soul or solely uh solely um s- solo uh, um um scripture by itself sola scripture alone is the final authority on the matter that's what i mean by sola scriptura i don't mean that you can't embrace christian commentaries written by human beings no i actually recommend that you do read them study them and make use of them they are absolutely invaluable in our growth as believers yes we should be using commentaries don't read the bible only and don't think that the bible is the only thing that's going to be able to give you all of the counsel of god because god has also given us teachers and preachers and prophets and and people in the church that are meant to help us grow into the full man of god right that's i'm kind of um, alluding to a passage uh in uh one of paul's letters but at the end of the day when we're talking about authoritatively and the final say on all things in its original autograph perfect without flaw then we're talking about sola scriptura as well as Tota scripture, we get our word total or totality. Then we're talking about all of scripture in contrast to the biblical Unitarian position, which kind of cuts short their theology when it comes to the apostolic scripture. They kind of pay lip service to the New Testament, in my opinion, in their theology of who God is. They reject what the apostolic scriptures clearly um, puts forth. Although, yes, it is an articulation of the minute of the uh, uh, mystery of God, but nevertheless, it's clear enough, it's unambiguous enough that we can draw the proper conclusion that Jesus is very God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is one with Father, with the God in a way that stretches our understanding of God, but completes our understanding of God and gives Jesus his rightful place alongside God, not just as the second person of the Trinity, but as one, very one with God his father in nature tota scripture we need both of them in order to have the proper approach to this particular topic so i go on to say because of that as well meaning as biblical unitarianism christology might appear to most christians right i firmly believe that this type of strict monotheistic understanding is inconsistent with the rest of the bible and the history of christian theology and so they cut themselves off from the apostolic scriptures even if they don't mean to do so i think that is what they are doing and it becomes a glaring weakness on their part in doing so but also the fact that they reject um the rest of historical christian theology on this particular topic let me continue i go on to say that to be sure with equal conviction i unwaveringly affirm that the new testament teaches that the son is a distinct person in the godhead and yet at the same time the son is co-eternal and co-equal with the father by comparison, let's talk about the um, biblical Unitarian perspective. By comparison, the non-incarnational Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 denies the deity of the Son, and thus, as already mentioned, this view ultimately undermines the doctrine of the Trinity and the authority, let me scroll up there, and the authority of the apostolic scriptures aka the new testament shame on you biblical unitarians don't do that don't do that as we say in korean haji maseo don't do that all right let's keep reading so i say in conclusion 
to this short discussion on the topic of the wisdom of Proverbs 8.23 for ease of understanding. Reproduced here below for those who may find them helpful are 12, I think there's 12, I may have, uh, somewhere around 12, a dozen bullet points summarizing the key points of this essay. All right, so let me just read the bullet points and that'll do it for this particular study. The first one, Proverbs 8.23 has been the subject of much debate and discussion in the history of Christian theology. Second bullet point, the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 is that the wisdom of God mentioned in this verse refers to an attribute of God rather than a person. Next bullet point, the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 reduces Lady Wisdom to a mere literary device known as personification, which again, there's nothing entirely wrong with that, but if you stop there, you're missing the full picture. The next bullet point, the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 denies the deity of the Son and undermines the doctrine of the Trinity. This is a summary of the study in bullet point fashion in case you got lost in the forest because of the trees and you're only joining us at this last um, episode of this particular study or you just really want to you're one of those types who buys a book and skips to the very end and reads the last um, chapters uh, of, of the book just so you can just uh, see what the whole book is about I'm kind of giving you that to you right now in summary form thus the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 823 I say is inconsistent with the rest of the Bible and the history of Christian theology. Now let's look at the contrast view or the possession that I take. The, the Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 is that the wisdom of God mentioned in this verse refers to the second person of the Trinity, that is the Son. The Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 is consistent with the rest of the Bible and the history of Christian theology. Oh yes, it is. There's no inconsistency there. The New Testament teaches that the Son is not a mere creature, like Jehovah's Witnesses teach, or a demigod, like they teach, but is, in point of fact, a distinct person in the Godhead and is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Let's keep reading these bullet points. The early church fathers affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity and the eternal generation of the Son. Again, these are meant to help us to locate our theology, our Christology of who Jesus is is in the Bible. These bullet points are simply a summary of the study that I've undertaken on Proverbs 8.23, where we're talking about the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs. And as mentioned over and over again, this topic is quite complex. Who is God? Who is Jesus in the in the um, picture of the Bible as compared to or perhaps sometimes contrasted with God. And um, these bullet points are meant to give you a very simplified version of um, this theological um, discussion or debate that goes on between Trinitarians and non-Trinitarians in this particular study that's entitled A Trinitarian Response to Biblical Unitarianism. So, the Trinitarian understanding finds resonance between the personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8.23 and the portrayal of the Logos in John 1, 1 through 18. Yeah, um, I think there is strong resonance there. In fact, um, it's quite Hebraic to take the personification aspect of wisdom in the book of Proverbs and do what John did, turn that personification into a full-blown person at the incarnation of the Word who was both with God and was God 
into the man known as Jesus, like John does if you read all the way down through John 1, 1 through 18. John seamlessly works from this idea of the word which was with God and yet was God and yet now is the man that um, uh, pitched his twin tent and dwelt among us. God pitched his tent in his skin suit known as Jesus and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thus, the incarnation got it right. And those of us who hold to that aspect are in complete agreement with what John is teaching. I bet you didn't know that the um, biblical Unitarian perspective of John 1.1 is that it's not Jesus who is the Word that existed with God and as God. Instead, Jesus is, exists in the mind of God. He's not the the um, uh, self-sufficient, uh, co-eternal, con, co-equal, consubstantial second person of the Trinity that that uh, John is describing. The Unitarians instead teach that the biblical Unitarians do, such as Dale Tuggy. They believe that instead uh, that uh, I believe it's Tuggy, um, it's or certainly the biblical Unitarian uh, denomination that I've been using in this particular commentary. They believe that John one one is describing uh, what uh, John would say is um, a thought in the mind of God that simply became a human later on in history. But um, there was no person going on there. It was just this thought that God used to create the world or something like that. All right. Anyway, let's keep reading these bullet points. We're almost done here. The Septuagint Greek translation of Proverbs 8.23 is consistent with the Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 as well. And then the final bullet point, <coughs> excuse me, the final bullet point in my short essay here, the Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 has been the most widely accepted view among Orthodox Christians today. And so that's going to do it for my short essay of on this particular passage. And there's some uh, brief... Um, uh, uh, footnotes there. You can see I pulled some information from gotquestions.org, from biblicalunitarian.com, and from um, a blog post of um, scottlapierre.org, uh, Jesus is the Wisdom of God. So, with that uh, out of the way, we'll call this part of our comic to a close, but let me show you what we are going to turn to next, and then we'll conclude um, this section on Proverbs. We're going to look at understanding Proverbs 15.32, which is actually connected to the, the study on Proverbs and wisdom, even though it starts from a, launches from a different part of the book of Proverbs. This is a series of answers to common questions from Sam Shamoon, who is a Muslim-turned-Christian uh, apologist. And we'll begin to look at his um, understanding of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. Continue to bless us and protect us and raise us up and give us voices of witness in this dark and confusing world as we recognize the signs around us are marching us very quickly towards the second coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Give us an expectation, an expectation. Help us to continue to keep um, our thoughts centered where they should be, which is on your word, your spirit, your um, lordship in our lives so that we can be the people that you need us to be when you return to claim us as your own. Thank you for this position and this um, truth and this blessed hope that we affirm with a strong conviction. And thank you for the fact that we can affirm 
based on the words of Scripture, that you, Lord Jesus, are very God. You are the creator. You are not a creature. You are not merely um, a human being, but you are very God in flesh, and we worship you as God. And we will thank you, Lord, for all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.